Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today, here somewhere around the one-year anniversary of the COVID pandemic, we're going to talk about that movie where you wake up every day and nothing changes. Don't forget your booties, Adam. We're talking about Groundhog Day. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. I'm Adam, and it's cold outside. I'm a minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Is it actually cold outside there? It is actually cold outside. It's March. It's always cold in March, and it makes me mad. In our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Groundhog Day helps us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Groundhog Day might help us understand the lectionary passages for Lent for March 14th. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. Before we get too far down the road, though, I want to introduce our guest, uh, reintroduce our guest and friend of the show, Steve Bragaw. Steve is a longtime professor of politics at Sweetbriar College in Washington and Lee University. He is now an MDiv student at Virginia Theological Seminary and Episcopal priest in the making. Steve, it's so great to have you back. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on, guys. So once upon a time, Bill Murray made comedies, like straight comedies, like Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, that one where he joins the army. These days, of course, we see him as kind of a dramatic rogue with thanks to how Wes Anderson has cast him or recent works like On the Rocks. There's a good case to be made that Bill Murray as a dramatic actor really comes on stage in the late 90s and early 2000s with films like Rushmore or Lost in Translation. But maybe it's even earlier. Maybe it's here in this now legendary little Zen comedy from 1993, Harold Ramis's Groundhog Day. Ramis, of course, had directed Murray on some of those earlier comedies, but this one is different, as I think we all know. Murray plays big city weatherman Phil Connors, who goes to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania to report on the annual Groundhog Day Festival. And he gets stuck there by a storm. And the next morning when he wakes up, it's Groundhog Day again and again and again. And for reasons that are never explained, Connors lives for days or weeks or months or years in this same loop over and over with a mixture of desperation and longing and self-realization that has made this into a modern day classic. Murray isn't just mining the comic beats, though they are definitely there. He's also finding the depths of existential crisis in this movie and doing it in the guise of romantic comedy at the same time. I also submit that this movie has resonance for us now than it would not have had even a year ago. At one point in his despair, Phil Connors turns to Ralph, who's one of the fixtures at the local diner, and despairs of his condition. What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered, he says. And Ralph gives the punchline, which is, well, that about sums it up for me. And if I'm honest, there are days in this pandemic where that has about summed it up for me too. 
where I'm still in the same house and I'm still in the same room and I have missed most of the markers of the passage of time and the turning of seasons. And so I think that as celebrated as this movie has been for several decades, in some ways it was made for such a time as this. So enough, I've made my case. Steve, tell me, what was it like for you to revisit Puxatawney? Also, do you have enough life insurance? <laughs> uh, no, I don't have enough life insurance. And no, I'm not going to punch you uh, as I'm stepping Does off. anyone really have enough life insurance, though? Do we really have enough life insurance? I guess mm -hmm. and fire and auto. Yeah, you know, I, revisiting this, I, I have a habit of or tradition of, of rewatching this movie every year on the, the night before, the, the, before Groundhog Day. And uh, I remember seeing it the first time when it came out and it was a sort of, I was working on my dissertation and there was a sort of like this, it struck a chord with me um, at a particular day and moment in my life that always, um, it, it just always meant something to me. But yeah, this year it's, it's just different. I mean, because there's the dimension, we always knew this movie was about purgatory in this world we're in a way. And we, I just never understood it until now. It's like, oh my gosh, I know what this is. And it's that sense of, of uh, time. I and mean, we know, we know why we're in this particular zone that we're in. But I think what makes this movie work is there is no explanation. He's just there. Um, and uh, that stood out. I, the other thing that stood out to me this time watching it was the look he had on his face the moment he's sitting in the diner and it's after he's like tried to kill himself a million times. I mean, I subscribe to the view that he's there for about 3000 years, right? So there's different sort of theories. How long is Phil in Puxitani? And at one point, Harold Ramis says like 30 years and at one point Harold Ramis, but before he dies, he's, no, he's actually there for about 3000 years. And so I kind of go with the 3000 years thing. And there's that image where he's sitting at the, the diner and he's reading, he's listening to the radio and he's playing that piece by Rachmaninoff. And then he just, the, it's just, it's all done with his eyes. He just looks up and the thought comes to him. And he's like, I want to be able to learn. I have the time. I want to learn how to play the piano. And it was just that moment. There's, it's just, it's, it's not comic. It's just, but he just does it with his eyes. And just this moment, just the way he looks up and listens. And he, for the first time in his life, he hears the music. And that's the point to me when it's like, that's when the movie changes. So it's just that sort of that the grace moment. I never, I mean, I'd seen it before, but I never saw it before until this time. Yeah, I mean, that is a, it's a lovely moment in part because it's, it's one of the gifts of this movie is the indication that there's more to the world than Phil, right? I mean, so Phil starts self-centered and makes this journey towards a sort of outward oriented type of human being who, who cares more about the world than he does about himself. And in order to care about the world, you have to pay attention to it and realize that it is, um, that there's more out there, that the opportunity to be curious in this world is actually the uh, the motivator or the engine towards some sort of, I don't know how we can talk about this, enlightenment, um, uh, is it a sense of um, purpose? I mean, I think in, in, in Christian traditions, we call this sanctification right that that you somehow like if if augustine is saying like sin is the curving in on oneself like what is what is phil's journey in this but the sort of outward orientedness that he ends up embodying and and that's a it's lovely and and i think murray's performance here is classic in, in every way that 
it should be for the ability to to play all of those beats. I, I think likewise, the thing that um that struck me this time in seeing and watching, and I've seen it, I, I don't know, probably 20 times, um, was the scene where he he convinces Rita that he's a god or he's like i'm not the god but i'm a god and 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 does all of these little he's not a donai he's loe right yeah i think i am so so he's he's um nice little ghostbusters throwback too i mean exactly yeah 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 Yeah, uh and and i'd always kind of just ignored the scene where they're just sitting in the bed and they're just sort of talking um and there's a moment there where he's He's moved past trying to manipulate, but he is trying to be understood, right? Because I think that's the fundamental human need is to be understood. And his particular experience in the world is unlike anybody else's, at least as far as he knows. Um, And as he's explaining it to her, they just kind of hang out with each other. And he seems very, he seems sad, but sort of self-assured. There's a sort of peacefulness there that I had never sort of recognized. And I sort of sat with that for a little bit. And and truthfully there, I don't know if I've ever in the last year sort of maintained enlightenment, but there have been moments where I'm just sort of sitting on a couch, just not at peace with the world, but at least present, not totally despondent, but just aware. And I can't say I've had lots of those experiences in my life, but I will say the the sort of the monotony of being in the same place every day, doing the same thing, never having that broken up by opportunity, travel, time in other people's homes. I don't have been in anybody else's house in a very long time. Um, so I, I that resonated me with, with me in this watch. And there are a couple of things that like question new questions that I had, but we'll, we'll get to those eventually. Matt, what about you? As you watched this, what was the what? I, I'm sure you've seen this many times too. What stood out to you, especially given the sort of pandemic nature of our lives? Yeah, I mean, I, I have some non-pandemic thoughts on it, but I, I, in, in the in the specific sense of that the pandemic question, I mean, I, I think it it highlighted for me and shown new light on it, this conversation that I feel like we've been having during pandemic for a year, which is about um, whether you are obliged to learn a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> like is, is, is pandemic and sort of by extension trauma, right? An, an, does it place an obligation upon you for self-actualization? Because I feel like this movie, and again, this movie is, is, I think I'm with Adam here, operating on a much longer time horizon than our current pandemic is. Uh, and, and I think I'm probably still in the like, let's steal the groundhog and drive out of town stage. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot of Twitter discourse about like, you know, we all learned to make sourdough bread. And then it was, then there was some pushback of like, you don't, you're not obliged to do anything with this. Like your whole goal right now is to survive. It's a pandemic. Everyone's having trauma responses. Like there's no, there's no oblige here. 
and 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 there's there's some there's some saved by grace and not by works that shows up in that conversation to me there's there's some uh there's there's some um kind of do I have to earn my way out of this that shows up in that conversation for me? And, and, I, and I, I, I mean, I wrestled a little bit with Groundhog Day on this viewing because of the way in which Phil is sort of required to earn his way out of his trauma. Um, and, 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 and so what, I, what I'm banking on is that maybe if I it was in this pandemic for 2000 years that eventually I would get around to self-actualization um, and this sort of, um, I mean, it's Augustinian. There's also just some like old-fashioned Aristotelian virtue ethics showing up mm -hmm. in here. Yeah, totally. You know, we just, yeah. you know, yeah. how many for, for how many how many months did it take him to practice flipping the card across the room into the hat? It's that same conversation in the bed, right? Where yeah, yeah. Like you know, and if if you had enough time, you too could learn how to flip the card into the, across the room into the hat. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, man. There part of me feels like um, a year into this I should have learned how to flip a card across the room into a hat but I haven't because I've been trying to keep myself sane and my family alive and that's a little bit what I wrestled with in this particular viewing mm -hmm. all right so quick quick pandemic bingo card check-in just with with the guys here okay who who started who did a star to starter at some point absolutely it's alive in my fridge right now yeah okay uh um, i've already killed enough sourdough starters i knew not to start this okay all right so yeah. I, I started but that or i got a sourdough starter from a friend um which i subsequently killed twice um and just felt really kind of bad about it and hid the fact i felt like i had to hide the fact that i couldn't keep the sourdough alive uh start again it's a good thing we're saved by grace though here's my here's my hop, here's my uh my my chorus for the morning that yeah no i mean and saved by saf use that i bought early in the pandemic where i bought about four pounds of it and then i didn't have to have sourdough starter because that stuff works amazingly <laughs> yeah though there was it's funny because i've been looking back at my journal from last year and just like all the articles and things it's even i wrote like you know is like the all the plague year stuff it's like your plague year to-do list it's like you know okay i have not written macbeth Right. I did right. not. Right. I did not write the uh, come up with the, the new theory of gravity. I mean, it was just sort of like that sort of thing. Right. Um, have not taken up a musical instrument, did learn a new language, but that's I had to, done that anyways, um, as I'm suffering my way through Hebrew. But so like there's this sort of weird. Yeah, it's like virtue. It's like this sense of like of of earning it. It's like the merit badge, like our plague merit badges that we're having to learn, which is why mm -hmm. I was kind of Kind of th the the purgatory dimension of this to me which is always that sort of dante's way of visualizing the the progression out of the mountain of purgatory as he sort of like i went back and looked at dante because I, I preached on this a couple weeks ago and i had never like noticed with dante's purgatory that it's a video game right it's like you go up each level right it's like achievement unlocked and then you get to a certain point where you have to meet the new boss because dante you know because virgil can't take you and like beatrice comes and you know you have to go through the fiery door and everything like this and it's and so there's that sense of you have to earn it each step of the way which just gets tiring um i mean there's just so much of this whole time period of this past year that as you know, we've lost, I mean, it's trite to say, but it's real that our brains are recording memory differently and, and our sense of time is off. 
and it's just it it just added to that sense of strangeness of this well and i think so i mean in the same way so at the end of that in the beginning of purgatorio there's this really lovely moment where virgil looking at dante realizes that his face is covered in the sort of hell like there's a and so he takes the dew of the of the field and then washes his face which is the sort of final moment of grace as i understand it from from that particular thing and i i like that in part because it seems like dante can't see what's on his own face and and honestly i think that's what this movie is missing yeah yeah is that um that phil is ultimately responsible for his own journey yes and no one else gets to go with him on it and he's utterly alone and there is the object of his affection who controls how he sees himself but yeah. there isn't anyone who imparts a sort of level of wisdom that allows him to sort of walk through a door or who like absolves him for his past that he's not fully wrestled with there there isn't a moment where somebody else comes to Phil and says like you have to make a turn and this is this is the thing that kind of frustrated me on this watch because I think that uh, that my understanding of wisdom and how we come to to wisdom, whether you want to call it wisdom or enlightenment or self actualization or whatever, like it always requires other people, not as like pawns or tools to figure out how we mess up, but as people who have learned this stuff before we ever did. And I just kind of I kind of left this watching wishing that there was somebody in Phil's life who had learned something that it didn't take Phil 2000 years to learn. They had actually learned it in their lifetime. And, um, and isn't just a tool uh, for, for Phil's own journey. And yeah, I think this is, you know, there are lots of iterations of this movie, Palm Springs being one of them. And I think this is where Palm Springs adds another character who's in the loop, a couple of different characters who's in the loop with them that has to like, who, who learns different lessons in the loop that other people have to learn. And that's what I was hoping for, because I think like, at least Dante has a Virgil and a Beatrice. Like they, it, Dante recognizes that you need to do, like this is done in community. And if we are talking about the pandemic, like I think that is where the saving graces of this have been, has been able to like send a text to somebody or Matt and be like, well, what's going on today? Like. You don't, we haven't done this. I, as much as I've been apart, I haven't had to do this alone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from a genre perspective, right. What I love about this movie is that there isn't that character, right? This is a break from the, it's a wonderful life type of version of this. Right. There's, there's no Jacob Marley. Yeah. There's no Marley. There's no ghost. There's no angel getting the swings. Just fell. And I, for, for many years watching this, I had a theory that the bartender knew because there's a scene when he's when he's when he he does the sort of like the five iterations of uh, of a row where he's kind of figuring out his approach to andy mcdowell's character the bartender looks at him and it's the same but there's a like there's a knowingness to it right um but which is also then raises you know there's other sort of uh dimensions to that but it's but i like the fact that this movie for this type of story doesn't have that which then allows us to be able to kind of think of like in Palm Springs is great. He's not the only one and that other people get brought into the time loop, but then other people can leave. Um, 
and then help us kind of understand this space that we're in, which is, yeah, we're not alone in this. You know, we're all in, in, in a bizarre way. We're all in this. And then wondering what type of stories are going to be told about this time that we're in right now. Um, you know, let alone, you know, because we all know like there's going to be this great heist movie, right? Where like they're doing the heist and it's the first, and they don't know it's the first day of the lockdown. And then it's like the whole thing. It's like, it's Ocean's Eleven, but they can't leave Las Vegas, right? You know, or, you know, there's just going to be, you know, there's, this is good. This is going to become its own. Uh, it's weird being in something where you're like, this is like a, this is going to be a, a trope that in the making and, but we're experiencing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our kids, you know, the pe- pe- people who are yet on board or who are too little to really remember, will just kind of roll their eyes at us. Like, you know, when we're watching James Bond movie and have to explain the cold war, you know? I think this is related somewhat to one of my gripes with this movie. And it's, it's, it's a genre of gripe I've had about other movies on this show. I think there are kind of three characters in this movie, maybe four, if you carve out the, um, the beautiful performance by Chris Elliott here, you've got Phil, (laughs) you've got Andy McDowell, you've got maybe Chris Elliott, and then you have the town of Puxatawney, this sort of one big character. Um, that has a sort of Springfield-esque just cast to it, but it's all sort of one thing. And I am super tired of small towns being depicted as morally virtuous characters. (laughs) Yes. Um, I want to see a movie where somebody goes to a big city and learns something real about themselves and about the country. And I'm tired of small towns being held up as the unique dispenser of what moral goodness is Mm -hmm. in America. Um, Which is not to say that small towns can't be wonderful, virtuous places. As someone who like served in a small town, Matt, do you have something to say about Well, I mean, this this discourse shows up in how we talk about ministry, but like- Totally. and how we talk about small churches and big city churches, and it's, it's in all kinds of like, you know, if you really want to know how to be a pastor, you got to go serve in some small town church somewhere. And yeah, it's all coded. It's it's, all very weird. Super, super coded. And I just, we've got, you've either got people who leave the big city to go find themselves in the country somewhere, which is what happens here. He's reluctant, but it, but it's what happens. He decides to stay there in the end. Right. Yeah. Or you have people. Strange decision. Yeah, who flee small towns to go find success or belonging in the big city um, because the small town can't can't hold them. Um, but but what I want to see is the the a, a big city held up as a place where um, actual good moral formation can happen um, because I, I think it's possible and and I and I think it this is pushing in some just some some deep-seated um, and not super helpful discourse in American civic fabric. Um, and, I, and so that's, that's my, my, my little mini soapbox. Um, Can I, where does, where does coming to America fit into this? That's a great counterpoint. I haven't, I don't know. I, I like a long time and I was, I would need to go back and revisit and with the new one is out today. Right. So like we got something like that. Yeah. There's a, there's a new one. Yeah, the second one. I I I know nothing about it except Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall are both in it. 
I, yeah. I watched the other one, the first one the other day. And if only because I think Queens is depicted in, in some small town ways and some interesting, yeah. in some in, interesting directions, though, with a sort of very late 80s urban patina put on it. Yeah, so, we just have not gotten over early 19th century fears of industrialization and urbanization. They're still with us and we got to get over them. Okay, well, yeah. Yeah, so I've got two things to say to that. First of all, I will not sit here and 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 listen to you defame the hallmark Christmas industrial complex. <laughs> I'm going to stand up for the the machines which spit out movies about big city hedge fund lawyer lady goes back to small town for Christmas tree festival to say to, and it turns out she, her hedge fund's the one who's buying the town because they want to turn it into a bio weapons factory only to find her true love from the guy she didn't know in high school who turns out to be the Mr. Darcy who's secretly wealthy. Um, and I will, I will die on that hill of preserving those movies. I actually, I would offer is that like the, the, the movie that does offer come to the big city and become morally formed in a righteous way um, by a very sort of distinct group, which is the uh, the whole MCU franchise, right? Centered on Tony and Stark Tower. I mean, you can't get more urban, coherent, the 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 virtuous family, the righteous family than uh, the Avengers. That's, that's- <laughs> That's not the movie I expected you to say at the end of that sentence, and I'm going to spend some time having to think about that a little bit. <laughs> what movie did you think I was going to say? I, 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 you had me in total suspense and also <laughs> managed to surprise me at the end of it, too. Yeah, I might have to think about that one, too, especially since Clint is um, almost I'm being always... A little bit, I'm being a little facetious, but uh, yeah. That, that being said, I'm, I'm curious to hear for both of you all um, how you might consider actually using Groundhog Day in a ministry context. And I think there's some interesting possibilities here. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to put one on the table that I've actually done, um, which mm. is that I, I have used Groundhog Day pre-pandemic as a session church planning exercise, vision exercise, um, oh. which is not without its faults. But I have, I have had a church meetings before where I have said, we are all going to now pretend that this church is in Groundhog Day, where um, whatever you would wh- whatever you would do, um, well, we could call it Groundhog Year if you like. At the end of this year of our ministry, everything will reset. the The money in the bank will reset. The membership will reset. Um, not, you will not, not, no decision you make will will materially affect what the, ch- what the church looks like next year in terms of its resources and its capacity. What, what would mm-hmm. you want to do? Uh, and it is not as simple as saying, whatever you answer to that is what you should do anyway, but there's something to that exercise about trying to focus a church to not, um, to, to not worry too much about um, material consequences and worry a little bit more about calling in the moment um, and vision in the moment and what what God is doing in in a particular moment. It's not a perfect exercise, but I have yeah, I mean it's a, it's, it's a, kind of interesting. 
it's an interesting way to try and balance people's imaginations, right? I mean, so if if you find a community's imagination being colonized by an uncertain future, like how do you help them see something besides that uncertainty on the horizon and see sort of local opportunity in their midst? I, I think that's that's valuable. I, for me, it, as I was watching it this time, I I, I think there's something smart being said about the nature of human relationship here um that is is worth considering um and this might maybe not for a congregation but this might be helpful for sort of uh, descriptions of ministerial formation as well which is um there's the vision of of human relationship which is like you have to manipulate people in order to get them to love you um which is the first iteration of 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 Phil's after he gets through the sort of mm, the Epicurean side, so to speak. I mean, I, I guess just the the side where he just tries to live out all of the vices, um, mainly sex. Uh, he 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 notices that he is deeply attracted and wants to be in relationship with Rita, but then manipulates her to try and get receive love. I, I I find that you know early in many people's ministries that's the sort of vision of how to how to get a congregation to love you is to give them what they want is to try and constantly sort of figure out their little dance steps and and then try and dance it before they do in order to get the type of the 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 attention that you want and then and then there's a more there's a deeper and and i think ultimately more difficult type of love, which is not just individuated, but it is, but neither is it altruistic. That is, Phil is learning all of this stuff. He's learning how to play piano. He's saving all of these people. He's learning how to like and care for other people in order that he might win the love of this person who he wants to love, who he wants to love him. And that's fun, just fundamental to human relationships. And I think we talk about in churches, we talk about God's unconditional love a lot, but we don't actually then talk, of, and, and we just assume that should be a model for human love. And I'm not sure that it should ultimately, because human love does have conditions placed upon it. And we have to respect those conditions. That said, by caring for ourselves, trying to understand how we can sort of grow in our care of the world, care of others, we actually do put ourselves in a position to be in love, to receive the affection of other people. And so I would sort of consider that, which is Phil is ultimately not altruistic in the end, even as he, you know, achieves enlightenment um, in the purest sense. He is giving, he is caring, he um, con continues to do good for people because they need it. Um, and that's enough. That's beautiful. Yeah, there's something about him catching the boy falling out of the tree a thousand, ten thousand times, right? And saying, you never thank me. Um, <laughs> and that, that line is so golden because it, it, it there's still a little bit of there's he still some the ego face. there, right? Like I want the acknowledgement, but there's also this 
even though he has never been thanked, Phil does not ever miss by that point being there to catch that kid out of that tree. Like it matters every day. He has to run down the sidewalk to make sure that he catches him, even though he knows he's not going to get anything from it. Um, and the day's going to reset and I'll have a chance tomorrow. There's something pure about it, even with that little bit of, I'd like a, you know, Starbucks gift card or something in return that, that, that leaks out. I, I think it, it captures that, um, captures that, that little bit of paradox really, really well. What about you, Steve? You have preached on this movie before. Yeah, I just preached a couple weeks ago. I mean, I, I to, to go back to the point on the the congregation, I'm just thinking about that in terms of a congregation I've been involved with, but also just even just being at seminary, that there's a dimension of this. It's the it's the point of the movie which it kind of hit me a little bit this time because it's when he's he's in the he's in the living room with the old people and he's got the bottle of Jack Daniels and he's watching Jeopardy, and it was Alex Trebek's voice. And it just kind of like, it hit me. It was like, it was, it was, oh my gosh. Right. You know? And, but it was that element of grief that, that, that he's going, that there's this element he's sitting there, he's going through the motions of just like calling out the names, doing what we always do in Jeopardy, right. Whenever we're sitting and watching, but just like, he's doing that and just drinking and he's got that 10,000 yard stare on his face. And it's obviously it's, it's a pit of depression for him, but it's also grief. And so it's that notion of, I mean, just like being in seminary right now with my classmates, right? Pandemic seminary uh, is really kind of a weird thing. And it's that sense of the grief that you're experiencing, which is like, the, it's the flip side of joy. You're going through this process, but you're, you're there and you're excited because you're there, but you've also given up, right? It's the old, like, so everyone's in sort of different stages of how you, of that transformation, but then it's like how you're giving up expectations, right? And so, um, so it just and sometimes you just need to let that set. Hopefully not, you know, not with the, the bottle of Jack Daniels in front of the Jeopardy, but just kind of being present for the fact that, you know, this this hurts, right? This this stinks. This is horrible. We're just going to open that and just kind of be sit present with that. Um, and in, con in some congregational work I've done in the past like in a transition situation, one of the things which I kind of saw and recognized what, what we needed to do was we just had lead to let the congregation grieve. It wasn't just over the sudden departure of, of, of someone, but of the, the beloved uh, rector before that, but even the beloved rector from like two or three iterations earlier who had left decades before. There were people who were still grieving but never processed that grief. And until we found we we found ways to kind of let that process, that was our way of moving forward. So I think there's this element of that which is just it's not something like in you know Dante's Purgatory is a video game where we have to earn it, but if you don't do that work, then you can't move forward. And so I think that's something which I kind of took from this this version of the movie, um, playing with those some of those types of themes. Mm -hmm. What if, here's, here's a dumb thought. What if Bill Murray actually experienced the events of Groundhog Day and that explains the pivot of his career? <laughs> <laughs> it's
it's a documentary. What if it's a documentary? What if it's a documentary? And the characters that he has played following from Groundhog Day, from Rushmore, from um, you know, um, the the various things that I mentioned earlier that have that deep world weary sort of um there's there's a there's some there's love and also um there's grief in it right he's yeah. a, he plays grieving characters now yeah um well and i think there's something what if, what if they that. what if he has been formed by three thousand years in purgatory and puxatani or could they were or, or i would love i love that and that would be kind of a, the sort of thing the other sort of way of thinking about it is the story that's attached to the movie was that um that they had a fight that bill murray um had they 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 and harold ramus had a fight right yeah. from which the, during the making of the movie from which they never recovered um they, they never apparently really spoke again until harold ramus was dying and even then never found a way to patch it up so that there's in a very weird way you know this is what it's you know what it that for for bill murray that this is it this is his i think this is his greatest this will be his greatest movie this is the movie that he'll be wrecked when he gets that cecil b DeMille academy award at the end of his career it'll be for this movie but in a weird way there's got to be this horrible dimension to it which is that this is also where he lost the, the best collaborator he would work with um, probably because, and I would be willing to bet it was 99.9% Bill Murray's fault. Well, Murray apparently wanted it to be sort of more philosophical and existential, and Ramos wanted it to be more comedy. Yeah. Uh, and you, I think that's a really beautifully productive tension in the movie. Yeah. But it's terrible for those men to have to bear the brunt of it and the scars of it for so long afterwards. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also uh, I just, just want to say that Quick Change might also be the movie that um, that he's remembered for. Yeah, go check out Quick Change. Have you seen the old Gina Davis, Randy Quaid, Bill Murray movie where he dresses up as a clown and has a heist? It's tier one heist movie. Got lost. So, so go check it out. Adam is inventing um, movies in right, the middle Matt, of our show. Let's let's put I'm it. not inventing movies. Quick changes is a great movie. You need wait to wait a minute. Oh, so they're wait. So that's the one where they're in the bank vault, and he's dressed as a clown, and he and he changes out of like the clown clothes to sneak out of, with like the hostages, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he. Uh, I mean, so Inside Man. You ever seen the Spike Lee movie Inside Man? Just ripping off Quick Change. Uh, so check it out. All right, Matt, before we move on, we have to say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and I want to guide your attention to the good work they're doing. Uh, Recently, I was particularly intrigued by a discussion in one of their recent issues about the future of theological education. Uh, Steve, you might find this fascinating considering you're in the midst of it. Um, It was a conversation with Emily Towns, Justo Gonzalez, Rowan Williams, and Sam Wells, um, all interesting and smart it's a it's really engaged it's infuriating in a good way as people are trying to do good work to um, make theological education not just relevant but also formative so I, I commend that to you if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the century sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free magazine subscription for more information visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer 
All right, gentlemen, let's talk about preaching. The texts for this upcoming lectionary are from year B, March 14th. This is Lent 4. We've got a text from Numbers with people complaining and God sending snakes after them. We've got the reference to that text in John 3 as Moses lifts up the snakes. And then, of course, including the famous verse of sporting, sporting events everywhere, John 3.16. We've got Ephesians 2 on children of wrath and the power in the air. And we've got Psalm 107 on thanksgiving and healing. Steve, I'm curious, as you look at these texts, what, what jumps out to you in its connection potentially to Groundhog Day? Well, it's, you know, this is this is such a, I don't know, say this in the right way, it's not crazy, but this is just like this wild connection here, right? You know, with the the, the serpents and the the holding it up. And I, I think it's it, it, how I'd want to think about how I would I would try to go with this is thinking about this idea um, at the end of the gospel passage, right? About um, about judgment and light, right? And and this idea in in Groundhog Day of how um, how this transformation is coming apart, coming coming about for Phil, right? Um, and that we don't have to do this journey alone as Phil is doing. I mean, this, in that sort of this way that is kind of like tricky and difficult about the movie is that he is alone in this. Um, but the message for us would be that we're we're not alone in this, um, just as we're not alone mm -hmm. together in the in the pandemic, we're, we're all in this together, um, but that we're also not alone in this journey and this transformation. Um, I don't know how to use the serpent and the snake in, uh, in this at all. I mean, that's just something which, I mean, I was kind of joking, we were having kind of a difficult week in, in seminar with people and, and everyone kind of worried about their work. And I was kind of joking to a friend of mine, I was like, I think what we need to do is just kind of get like the certain, the, the little, uh, get the snake up on the pole. And so we can all, since we're all kind of griping about our work and then I think that we're going to get bitten by some snakes. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think going with this, that, that message of, 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 uh, of, of uh, not being alone is, is, would be the way I would, I would start with that. I would try to find the way out of that. What about you, Adam? What, what jumps out to you? What connects for you with these texts? Um, so I, I want us to have a longer conversation about the Ephesians text, especially around grace. So I'm going to let you take that part, Matt. But I, I'm going to let's talk about that serpent text for just a second, because I think it's a really fascinating and weird one, especially given um, Israel's affinity for metal casted idols. This is a strange story in the book of Numbers, whereby the wandering Israelites are instructed to gaze upon a figure of their enemy, more or less. Um, that is, the, the, the object of their terror becomes lifted up and is then the, 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 the means or the vehicle by which they receive their grace. Um, now, there's a lot you can do with that with respect to sort of thinking about the ways in which Jesus talks about death in particular and death as the means by which you learn to live. Um, this is one of those like strange moments of like early homeopathy where it's like, oh, it's the thing that <laughs> that is killing you. You actually need to ingest. Um, but more than that, I think this is like one of those very first public health experiments. And I just keep looking at this text and trying to sort of 
and look at it and wonder what the Israelites did when they began to realize that the serpent upon which they looked was actually efficacious, like that it actually worked. Were they more cavalier in their behavior, given the fact that they knew that it wouldn't affect them very much. I mean, they have to get bit by a snake, I suppose, which sucks. And and over time, they, it seems as if God is trusting them to not just abuse the bronze serpent, but to use it as a sort of for which it was intended to not to 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 be saved. And I think about this with Phil in some ways because. There is a moment where he realizes not only that he can't die, but that there is like this, this unlimited freedom allows him to do or be anything he wants. And after a while, he realizes that it's not actually good for him, but neither is it good for anybody else. And so it's a little bit, I I mean, I think about this a lot with like the ways in which questions of the of the vaccine are communicated towards the world, which is there are a lot of public health officials who are afraid that people getting a vaccine will just go and get wild and then give permission to everybody else to get wild. Um, but there's never a consideration of like of the people who get it, who will who may get wild, but then realize that that's not actually what they wanted to do, right? Like that there, there are longer histories to our lives, even when we might have freedom, that we don't actually use it because we recognize that the use of that freedom then ultimately will impinge on others. And I think that's what's going on in this text. That's that's my strange angle on the, the serpent and Groundhog Day and, and a pandemic and a vaccine. I, I like that connection. I mean, it's not related to Groundhog Day, but I'm, I'm always curious in this text about um, the people's understanding of their sin, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord, mm-hmm. um, which which is not one of the sins that I am aware of. Um, and, it, <laughs> and, it, and in fact, Old Testament tradition is rich with people speaking against the Lord and being, and, and being appreciated and valued for having done so. I mean, Jacob being the most obvious, but right. certainly not, by no means alone. Um, Moses himself speaks against and speaks and argues and wrestles with the Lord. And so the, the people's understanding of the, their own sin here is really fascinating to me. Um, because well, I, 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 yeah, I think too, Matt, like the way that I've always understood this is like, especially with this text and the other texts where they're down, like fascinating or fashioning bronze idols. Um, it, I, it feels like they've been monotheistic for like six minutes. that's right that's exactly right right like they've just not they don't really get it and they're just like is this anything like it was in egypt and moses and god continue to say no it's real different and they're like oh are you sure and they're like nope promise it's different and they're like doesn't look different so we're gonna go (laughs) into the stuff we used to do (laughs) and just cover all bases is that cool is it's like day four of Atkins for them, and they're like, "Does pizza crust really count?" <laughs> yeah, and yes, it does. Yeah, that's exactly like they, they just <laughs> yeah. they're not practicing monotheism at this point, right? Like by the time we get to no. the kings, they're they're they've they they've had a season or two to figure this stuff out, but here it's very very early. 
Now, and of course, we're so conditioned with all our sort of insights now on vaccines and everything like that. So was there a wooden, oh, this is horrible for me to say, was there like a wooden, there was like, a, there was a, was there a placebo sample, like with a wooden pole with a wooden snake? And they're like, this isn't uh, working, worry. but the brown, yeah. <laughs> this is Moses <laughs> with a clipboard, just like, hmm. <laughs> So let's talk, right. the, let's talk about the let's talk about the text. I mean, sorry, we, we've sort of already talked about it because we've already had this conversation about grace. And but but I I really think I mean, if if one wanted to preach Groundhog Day on this particular Sunday and these texts, this is this this to me is where you go. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, be, because it, it it is about uh, how we recover from spiritual death. Um, you know, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in what you once lived following the course of this world. And then something changes. God is rich in mercy, raises us up for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. Um, and I, I think that pretty staggeringly reads against the the depiction of of grace that is in this film, um, and 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 it there might be a different way to thread the ending of this movie, but it is not the way that they chose. Where in order to get break the cycle, he has to um, become the sort of human that Andy McDowell will fall in love with. Um, and only once that happens can he wake up and have something be different. Um, and 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 I, I I just think it's um, I think it's a it's a great movie and a beautiful sort of rom com script. But I but I mm -hmm. from my perspective as a, a sort of workaday reformed theologian, it is it is not um, salvation through grace. Uh, and so I I think you could use something like that movie as the contrapositive to talk about what's at stake in this text for us. Because in, in Ephesians and, and elsewhere in the epistolary literature, I, the, the way that grace is talked about, and granted, Steve, you've got two reformed pastors here. So like, <laughs> hang with us for a second if you disagree. I'm so here for it. The, the idea is, is like, grace is... It's not earned, right? But it, but neither is it not consequential. Like it is the thing that spurs the type of sanctification and the the ultimately the the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of caring, the outwardness, the outward oriented life. It's the it is the grace is the means by which someone can be turned, and this is a movie about earning it. It's about someone who has the time to earn it. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about that sort of vision of, of relationship and altruism is that Phil in the end is ultimately not perfect. He's not, he's not become the sort of, he may have become the idealization of Andy McDowell, but he's not the idealization of everything. And neither has he sacrificed that much to be perfectly frank, um, which is a necessary part of grace. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm just reading through Ephesians and that question of death, right? Like in the end, like death does turn him into some greater sense of the world, which I think is what 
the writer of Ephesians is trying to say here, like that, that our consideration of death actually helps us understand how close to death we always are. And as much as I'm annoyed by the, the old man dying over and over again portion of this movie, in part because they never give him a name and they're like, well, why did he die? He's just old. I was like, no. yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. He was transient. Like he had a, that like poverty is a part of this equation somewhere along the line. Friends where like he was. That, that he sounds was, like a big city problem, Adam. <laughs> like I was looking at him. I was like, he lived on the street in the middle of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania in the winter. I, I think there's something besides he was old that could be used as an explanation not, for not his a, death. Not, not in a nice small town like Punxsutawney. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, like, he didn't have medical insurance. Um, so there's that that impulse that pulls him into a sort of wider vision of who, the, who everyone is, but not in, but not, it doesn't go far enough doesn't press him far enough into his inability to deal with death that would make grace rich enough to want to embrace it that's my sense so you were much more of a fan of the ending of lost then look i i <laughs> recognize that lost has uh, some some problems but i was not outraged in the way that everybody else was i'm, I'm just kidding i'm just teasing I, you. No, but I think because I just think there. This is a movie about someone who ultimately succeeds, and the gospel is also about somebody who succeeds. Yeah, but it's not us. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's a really important distinction. And like recognizing our inevitable failure is part of the equation. It's part, it's part of the faith equation. And it's part of the thing that opens us up to an understanding of Christ as reflected in a book like Ephesians, where like we live in a land of death and whether or not you believe that or not, like that's the case. And I mean, I mean that Ephesians begins with like this declarative, like you are all dead. It's like, well, that's news to me. Like, I think if I died before, I would remember it. But it's an emphatic statement to help us just recognize the state of the world as it's currently configured. And I don't know if he ever fully recognizes that. Or, 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 or there, or, or that he dies so many times. There's the whole sequence where he, he kills himself so many times, but it doesn't have any meaning, right? He's not, it's it's not he's not dying to save the old man he's not dying to save the kid falling from the tree he's dying because he just doesn't want to live anymore but can't be let go of that so yeah it's not death he's it's not final yeah it's not final you know presbyterians don't talk a lot about sanctification but i but i i i wonder if i mean there's sort of a if, if I were trying to make a sort of Presbyterian reformed argument for grace in this film, I think you would almost have to make the difficult argument and say that the grace shows up when Phil is subjected to living in this town over and over again, the same day over and over again in the first place. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, that the grace is in the opening act of this film, um, which gives him the opportunity 
and the time and the, and, and the motivation yeah. to then grow in his faith and his discipleship and his virtue habituation. Um, I, I don't love that argument. I still think it, it, it runs up against the rocks of how the last 10 minutes of the film are structured. Um, and I don't love that argument because I've been living in my house for a year and I don't want to think about it as, as, uh, <laughs> as an instrument of grace. Um, but I, I think there's, you could, you could try to wedge that in there if you really wanted to. I mean, right. it would be sort of uh, purgatory as grace, um, at, you know. Which Another is not, option. Another shot. Yeah, it's it's not quite a it's not a normal Presbyterian argument, but it, you you could probably try to put that on for size if you wanted to. <laughs> um, I think that probably about wraps it up for this movie, gentlemen. Thank you all for talking about it, and thank you, Steve, for hanging out with us today. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Bringing your wisdom. Thanks, guys. It's it's it's, it's great to be back on. Yeah, I think is this is this my fifth time on the show? I think it's my fourth or my fifth. So I wonder if there's like that five time club, like for Saturday Night Live, something like that. We have to figure it out. We <laughs> we keep bad records. We're not very good at keeping records. To be totally <laughs> frank. Well, we'll look forward to time number six, and we'll we'll have you back on soon. All right, love love you guys. Yeah, see talk you. soon. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's a chance to get another preacher thought from something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? Um, the last time there was a pure sitcom shout out on this show was you lifting up Ted Lasso. Uh, and you were absolutely right. That show was amazing. Uh, and I love it. And Sarah and I just started good, watching right? it again. We started, we're on our second watch now and it's better the second time. Um, it's so good. So my turn for a pure sitcom shout out is that is that I want to shout out Kim's Convenience. Have you watched Kim's Convenience? No. What is it? Um, Kim's Convenience is on US Netflix. It is a Canadian sitcom actively in production, started about five years ago, um, set in Toronto. It's the story of a Korean immigrant family that owns a little convenience store in Toronto. Um, so mom and dad are first-gen immigrants and their kids are um, uh, young adults, uh, like 20 and 25, maybe something like that. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, it's just great. Mm. Um, I gotta check it out. It, it, is, it is not a long form story arc like you would get with Ted Lasso or A Good Place or something like that. It has more in common with uh, sort of standard family workplace sitcom. Like there's a little bit of, there's even just a little bit of like cheers in there or something like that. Um, but what it's able to do, and I think this is heavily to do with the fact that it's Canadian and not American, is that it's able to love this family as an immigrant family without um, putting the enormous pressure of diversity and representation on top of them that, um, that, a, that, that Hollywood would normally put. The, the, the parents speak in heavy Korean accents and nobody cares. Mm. Uh, the right. neighborhood that they serve in is just sort of wonderfully and beautifully diverse uh, without people feeling like, well, I, I don't watch it and feel like these people are carrying the weight of representation in the way that they would be if this show were made for ABC. And there's something um, that, of that that becomes light and buoyant 
and totally joyful, not to mention just being funny and and um, a pleasure to watch. It's really well scripted and written. So I, I encourage everyone, we are just beginning season two. There's four on Netflix and a couple more in production. Uh, it's not by any means heavy you watching. It's just pure, um, pure joyful pleasure. So I recommend Kim's Convenience to anyone with a Netflix account. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I've got a little time today. I might go watch it. Yeah. What about you, Adam? Um, so I kind of struggled to find something. I think I like everybody else I'm, to the extent that there is a monoculture caught up in it. I'm watching WandaVision. Um, I'm piecing my way through Schitt's Creek over a long period of time, which is both of them wonderful. Um, the thing I find myself thinking most about right now um, is leaving my house. And... Okay. Um, and I spend an inordinate amount of time on the uh, on my computer, just like looking at hotel prices, <laughs> um, which get, fills me with a sense of like true longing, um, but also with a, a sense of hopeful expectation. So I'm, I'm kind of in that spot right now, um, especially as it pertains to the summer. I March is always really difficult for me, just because living on the East Coast it's still cold. Like March is still cold on the East coast. Yeah. Um, uh, even though it's, it's supposed to be in the forties today, it's super windy. So it's, it's miserable out. Um, and I'm, I'm tired of the, the season right now, but I'm, it's starting to turn. I saw some crocus the other day. And so it's, there's, there's a, there's a sense of opportunity that's coming and what it's done is it's given me hope that I might go to those places that are really important to me um, that I haven't been to in nearly two years. And, um, and I'm hopeful that it's that, 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 that will come, but it's that, that longing to go and be at a place. I'm, I'm just kind of reveling in the opportunity to spend some time thinking about it in a way that I was, I didn't permit myself previously because it felt so, it just felt so painful. Um, so if you are like me, kind of like have been craving things, but realizing that like giving into those cravings was, um, was either too painful or, you know, didn't, um, not feasible. I would, I mean, take a look at like a flight or something like that. <laughs> you don't have to take one you don't mean you know, this is such a there's so many differing visions about what people should be doing right now and where they should be going and whether or not it's safe and and i hope that there's clarity on the on the horizon but regardless of whether there's clarity or not it's just good to remember those places and that they exist and that the opportunity to be there might might soon arrive so um yeah i'm just I'm sort of caught in my feelings with 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 respect to geography right now, Matt. I'm I'm flashing to the uh, the SNL skit from a couple of weeks ago of about Zillow. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that was or, funny. Where yeah. like all the you know all, all the thirty somethings are like basically browsing Zillow, but it's all it's all presented as like seductive adult content. Like we're all just sort of having sexual relationships with houses in the country that we fantasize about. <laughs> um, I think there's yeah. uh, there, there's there's a little bit to that, and I hear a little bit of that in some ways. And and you're talking about just the sheer 
just the sheer browsing um has some yeah um has some dopamine effects um, yeah no that's it in the same way that like a good movie can <laughs> yeah sure 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 you well, know and i think that like i don't know i i have to say like i saw like a piece of brisket from austin the other day on my phone and i was like well that that might be a possibility yeah that's i'm like holy i'd like to eat that and i might be able to la barbecue is opening a new restaurant down the street i saw that oh my gosh man how close is it to you Oh, it's it's the same. It's it's, it's trivially different same system from their their old place. I'm I'm a little sad that they're leaving the gas station, but I'm excited for them that they can uh, get their feet up underneath. So, oh, that's anyway. gonna be awesome. So you'll I come mean, and I... we'll get we'll get some brisket. And uh, the place is ridiculous. And, oh and my all, gosh, it's so good. And all will be better. All right, that about wraps it up for this episode, folks. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Bronco. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.